Just so you know, I've been more in my head lately than usual, so I talked for about 20 minutes this intro. So if you're not interested in hearing me try to understand what consciousness is, I would go ahead and fast forward to about the 20 minute mark or so. But yeah, here you go. All right, I have a lot to unpack. I have been so heavy with thought lately. It has made me sort of numb. And I don't know if talking about it will help that, but I guess we'll see. I, every time I'm thinking something, I'm, I'm usually putting it in different compartments. So sometimes I think something and I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep that one to myself. Other times I think, all right, that's going to fit in my journal. I'll, I'll write that down to have. Other times I actually think I'll discuss that in the podcast. That'd be a good thing to dwell on. And maybe if I free think it um, unscripted, that I'll get somewhere with it. This is usually not the case. Um, and other times I like to think that it'll fit in my book, which is from the perspective of a fictional character. So that's usually more specific things or things that I can mold um, in a broad sense. But lately, those things have all kind of been meshing together, and I'm not really sure of anything. Uh, before I get into that, I am sure that it's spook time. Uh, Halloween's in a few short days, and I hope that everyone enjoys the candy and, and friendship that Halloween brings with it. So, um... I guess I'll begin with discussing a book I read, which kind of started this whole downward spiral. Um, it's called Freedom from the Known by Jitta Krishnamurti. It's about 100 or so pages, and it's basically, um, it, it undoes everything, essentially. And by that I mean love and fear and violence, and thought, and consciousness consciousness on its own. And, um, yeah, it kind of turned my mind inside out. The point of the book, which is interesting to say, considering the book rejects the idea of points being made on things, um, Krishnamurti denies himself an authority on the subject, and says not to allow him to be a guide or a coach. Which, which sets you up for confusion, but I think the point of the book is to question everything as a structure, and I need to really, you have to really, really stop and think about that in every sense of the word to actually understand what it means. So, he's basically talking about this way of thinking that is um, unable to be filled with conflict, and this is because humans find conflict in everything due to our, uh, I would say our, our arrogance. Um, we think everything is in relation to ourselves. We think thought and consciousness in the world around us and morals and values and love and hate. This is all pertaining to us and it's all through us. It's all about our sense of perception. And what the book is discussing is that you have to view these things as a structure rather than what is. Um, 
I I don't know how he puts it into words, but essentially, if you stop and you look at everything as okay, let me let me try to say it a different way. So basically, he talks a lot about time and how the only thing that matters and the only thing that is us is the now, the second, the second, the second. And every time that we hold on to feelings of regret or we get angry or um, even when we love someone, we're comparing it to the past and we're using our memories to make the present, which means we're not living in the present at all, which means it doesn't belong to us. We're constantly comparing everything to the past. And it's a very interesting way of thinking. And you can hear what I'm saying and you can read what he's saying and think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're not you're not really getting it unless you actually try to try to accept that in a way and think that everything that is happening, absolutely everything, my interpretation of this the words that are coming out of my mouth, the way that you feel listening to this, none of that is actually what is. It is not what we need to spend our time with. And it's due to these things that we have conflict. It's due to our ideas of wealth and of war and things like that. It's, it's all of these things that we have conflict. And when you look at Everything as simply is. You don't attach your emotion to it. You don't attach your prejudices to it. You don't attach your memories to it. You cannot have conflict. Because say you love someone and they don't love you back. Or you don't think they do. What's happening there is you are building what you think is love out of the past memories you have of them. You're not actively loving them now. Because to love now is to grow consistently rather than think that what this person is is their past and this is the fault is that we're not living individually presently we're living in our memories so we don't really have a now we just have a reflection on the past so say that you love someone or you think you do and they don't love you um what's happening there is that's not love it's as simple as that. That is not what love is. That is what you think love is and what you're projecting You're projecting love onto. So when you step back and you look at love as it is, untouched, um, pure, then you can understand that there's no reason, there's no reason to be worried in this situation because the love is simply not there. Um... And to put this perhaps more clearly, what I mean by that is when you say you love this person, you're not actually concerned with the pure love that you have for them. You're concerned with your idea of the love that you have for them. So in this way, you're being selfish because true love is selfless. True love does not include your sadness. It doesn't include your envy if the situation calls for that. It doesn't include any of this. And um, Krishnamurti says, uh, when you lose someone you love, you shed tears. Are your tears for yourself or for the one who is dead? And this is with death, of course, but similar in, in if, you're, if you're losing someone. And he says, are you crying for yourself or for another? Have you ever cried for another? And I think what he's saying here is that 
a lot of what we do is selfish because it's all out of ourselves. When you're crying because you're out of a relationship, you're not crying because you love this person and they are gone. You're crying for a couple of reasons. You're crying because you are afraid of being lonely. You are afraid of the fear of not thinking that you love someone. And you're you're upset for your reasons. You're upset for your reaction to the situation. And this this is, of course, understandable, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's a misreading of what you think love actually is. And he says... Um, when you ask what love is, you may be too frightened to see the answer. And this is true because it's very radical what he's saying. It undoes everything that we think. And we feel we feel offended if I say something like, you don't know what love is. That feels offensive, but it's not the case because if you can actually truly step back and see what love actually is or see what fear actually is, then you can't have this offense. You can't have this conflict or anger. And I think that's the point of it is that he's he's just trying to get you to step back and not be stuck in the same the same ways that you've learned. And yeah, his his point is that if you're seeking love or you're analyzing love or you're saying so proudly that you love someone, then you're not really understanding what that love is because that love doesn't need to be declared. That love is simply felt. And this is true with all the other things he's talking about. Um, and basically he's saying that there's fear. The reason we have conflict is due to fear, whether it be of success or wealth or love or whatever it may be. We are constantly subscribing to the idea that we have to be in the known. And there's fear in that. Now I'm trailing and probably not doing the best job of <laughs> explaining as he does, but the essence of the book is that we think that everything that is, is true because we think it. We think that everything through thought is so, and it's just not the case. And when you can step back and see thought as a, as a construct, as a structure, then you can totally understand what you are. And I think that thing is consciousness, the actual being of consciousness. Um, now, how I've been thinking about this, um, I'm I'm forced to do things. I'm not forced. That was silly. I'm I'm in a time in my life where I'm consistently on a on a schedule where I can't sit and just think. So every time I'm in class or I'm at my job, um, there creates this dissonance when I think about things like Krishnamurti talking, because while, while it's, it's, it's really powerful to step back and, as he says, have a mutation of your psyche and look at things completely different, to not look at love as something that is or fear as something that is or violence as something that is, but simply something that we think is through our thought. To actually do that is... Um, it's incredibly powerful, but it's so hard to actually get into that mindset. It's so easy to focus on what's in front of us because that's that's what there actually is. It's what there actually is, and it's so hard to remove myself from that when I'm constantly being surrounded by it. This is so hard to explain, but I guess the root of what I'm saying is, is that there's always something in us that is fearful. There's something that's questioning. Um... 
we're always contemplative of violence and sorrow and grief and regret and confusion. And the book is attempting to undo those things. And once you can see them as happenstance, once you remove you from it, only then maybe can you find calm and not conflict because we always feel like this is happening to me. And when you can step back and see these conflicts as a structure, and when you see yourself as only, only an observer of it, all you are doing is watching it happen, then you can understand that you are right now. You are this exact moment, and that is what you are. You are not yesterday. You are not tomorrow. You are not your dreams. You are this exact moment experiencing what's happening. And if you can actually really wrap your mind around that in any way, it can free you. It can absolutely free you from conflict and from all these other human problems that we have. And we're too busy. We're too busy saying that fear is the most important thing to acknowledge that fear for what it is. And this is the problem that the most important thing, consciousness and understanding the purity of who you are, this is what we spend the least amount of our time thinking on. And that's why it seems so radical and it seems so untrue. Shit. All right. Well, I rambled enough about that. Uh, I don't know if it got through it all. I apologize if this intro is too long. You can just skip ahead <laughs> if you need to, to to get to the chat. But I've, I've had a lot on my mind, and I don't know if this is the place to do it, but I feel like I've just been bottled up. Um, another, the main thing I've been thinking about is, okay, let me, let me try to say this. There is, I believe, a thing in all of us, whether it's active or not, especially in me. It's not necessarily a question. It's not anything that we can really put words to. The problem is, there's that pit of feeling. You can call it fear of the beginning, un not knowing where we came from. You can call it fear of death, because that's some people's most important worry in life is what happens to us after death. You can call it something deeper, like the questioning of thought in general, the, the, the question of consciousness. What is consciousness itself? How did it come to be? And did it come to be? And is there such a thing as coming to be? You can call it that. Regardless of what you call it, there is something in all of us, and it's there, and no matter how many books of philosophy I read, no matter what I study, no matter what anyone studies, there's no true way of knowing. We are admitting that there has to be something to subscribe to, whether it be a religion, whether it be something like Krishnamurti's undoing of everything and just calling us pure consciousness, that could still be wrong, technically, but... I do believe that there's an argument that that has to be closer to the truth because it's it's the deepest form of understanding to say that we are consciousness. In, in an absolute nutshell, all we are is watching ourselves think and wonder and hope and dream and fear and get angry. And this kid in my class, he I don't remember what we were talking about, but he mentioned this he just said thing, this deep thing, whether it be the sadness or the grief. He said unhappiness is what he called it. He said being unhappy. And you can't even put it into words. 
it's so powerful. Um, and this is what sits with me. And he, my problem is, my problem is that there's no absolute truth. It does not exist for me to know an absolute truth, at least not with the mind that I have. I don't know if others can, and that's incredible to think they can. But I cannot know that there's an absolute truth. Now, here's the thing. When I say that, I'm saying that I know something. If I say there's no absolute truth, then I'm saying the absolute truth is that there is none. And when I'm saying that, I'm creating a paradox. And it's so hard to think that the most important question in life is a paradox, at least to me. That all I want is to hold on to something. All I want is to feel that anything, whether it even be Krishnamurti's idea that nothing is able to be held on to, even that, I want to know that that's true or that I can feel comfortable with it. And I don't know now if that feeling will ever come. And maybe even my contemplation on this is a waste of time and it's it's not getting the message as I just tried to explain it. Because again, I'm relating everything to myself. We're pretending that life is a question of what do I get to figure out? What do I have to know? What, what is the truth to me? When maybe if you just accept the truth as just being absent from us, then maybe the, the question goes away. But I don't know. And I'm going to wrap this up soon because it's been about 20 minutes of me babbling, but I've also been thinking a lot about God, um, talking to my roommates about Jesus and various beliefs. And I think, I don't want to get into that, but uh, a lot of Indian philosophy suggests that the God, that we are made of gods, that we are everything, and that monoism the idea that there is no duality, there's no difference between man and God. This is the way to understanding everything. Because if we're separating ourselves, then we're automatically setting ourselves up for failure because when you're detaching yourself from something, you're, you're inevitably going to have questions. And Krishnamurti argues this, that to declare yourself a religion is to separate yourself from the rest of the world. And that's exactly what everyone does. Um, I don't even know what I want. My I don't even have a goal. And maybe that's the point, is that I don't need to have a goal. But I'm just still so curious how I'm supposed to function, how I'm supposed to still pursue money and whatever else it may be, because it, that doesn't really get touched on. It's just, here's how you think, and then uh, once you have that, you don't worry about the other stuff, and you just go through the motions. And um, in Indian philosophy, there's also a book called the Bhagavad Gita, which is like the book. Um, and it's a tale of a warrior named Arjuna speaking with the divinity Krishna about what it what all this means. And, and basically, Arjuna doesn't want to go into battle. They're on a battlefield talking. And Arjuna doesn't want to go into battle because he has to fight his cousins. And he says, Krishna, I'd rather die than, than kill my cousins. I would not feel anything from that. And Krishna basically argues... Who, how do you have the audacity to to feel, that, to think that you get to feel poorly about killing them? It is your duty to fight. And I, Krishna, am all things. And it's your duty. And there's a lot about just doing your duty and doing what you need to do day in and day out. And, um, I don't know, my perspective is that I... <laughs> 
I don't even know what to take from all this. I'm I'm honestly overwhelmed with thought, and a bit of it feels freeing, and a, and it feels important to to think on these things because I think I'm getting somewhere. But even this podcast, like, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? It is so trivial to be sharing conversation. Um, I don't know. I'll get more into this another time. But really, try to undo what you think thought is, I guess. Now to my guest. My, wow, my guest, Colin Stetson. He just composed the soundtrack for Hereditary. And it was brilliant. I love this movie. I love this soundtrack. And Colin has also made some of some music with some of my favorite artists, um, Bonnie Iver and Arcade Fire. And it was incredible to get to speak with him. And uh, I think this is where I can find comfort in my days is talking. And as long as I'm talking and asking, I'm not stagnant. And I think that's important. Please devote your time to listening to Colin Stetson. Um, it was it was such a nice experience to talk to him. And he's from Ann Arbor, so shouts out. Thank you if you listen to this. Thank you if you listen to the show. Thank you if you think anything of what I just said is is impactful to you in any way. I know I'm trying. Um, please share this. Uh, tell people to listen if you got anything from it. And watch Hereditary and listen to the soundtrack, as well as Colin's solo work. It's it's just, it's unlike anything I've ever heard. So thank you. Uh, here's my conversation with Colin Stetson. give a shout out to Ann Arbor because I'm actually in Ypsilanti right now. No and way. Yeah, I go to school here. So okay. that's crazy well, that's where that. you're from. At yeah. Eastern? Yeah, I go to Eastern. Great. Oh man, it's been a long time since I was over there. Yeah, well, what was it like growing up in Ann Arbor? Cuz I I'm actually from Flint. Like that's where I was born. Okay. So I I didn't usually live down at the bottom. I lived more at the top. So I'm curious how what was it like living down here? Um, I, I have no, uh, no other frame of reference, no <laughs> other perspectives, but, um, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I li- I liked growing up in that town. It, um, and back when I was, uh, when I was growing up, I feel like that still had, there, there was still a vestige of its earlier punk, uh, roots and days. Mm-hmm. And so there, there, I mean, I've still got to play just ridiculous, um, uh, house parties, you know, basement, uh, house parties throughout my, my teen years right? and go to see all these underground shows. And, um, there were still, um, you know, edgy venues. Um, and, uh, yeah, there was, there was a lot to do. Um, the schools were great and there was in just, just tons of opportunity. And, um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of nature very, very close by. Yeah, so for sure. As, in terms of places to grow up, it was pretty tops. I, I liked it. Yeah, it's a, it's a really nice place. I've only been here for a couple of years now, but there's just a lot going on everywhere. And 
being in Ypsilanti, I'm like right between Detroit and Ann Arbor. So there's just tons of shows that I can go to like all the time, which is dangerous Mm -hmm. (laughs) because money, but (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. So you were, you were into like punk when you were younger. Is that the kind of music you listen to? Um, not necessarily. Um, there, uh, I was, what was I, I mean, I was kind of a, I was kind of then as I am now, kind of across the board, a lot mm-hmm. of different things. I, I grew up when I was little, I grew up on my dad's records, which were pretty much just, um, a, a, a few selections of classic rock, um, heavy mm-hmm. on the Hendrix oh. Beatles and, uh, and, um, Jethro Tull nice. and, um, and then, you know, started to listen, you know, kind of got into Michael Jackson and Prince heavily in, in my uh, young, young days. And that, you know, spawned into a pretty deep affection for um, uh, metal uh, mm. eventually um, when in my preteen years, which then, um, I mean, got me to Mr. Bungle, which got me to Zorn, which got me to all sorts of, um, you know, more free improvisation and noise musics. Right. Um and uh, and then, you know, across the jazz spectrum, I, I started playing classically and studying classically when I was 15, which opened up that whole world. Um, so uh, the different, you know, um, elements of rock and pop and jazz and noise and uh, and then concert musics mm-hmm. all just started, you know, breaking off in every different direction. It, it's really just um, it was just a this this network of of intersecting uh, veins that um that always led somewhere else and and that was back in the day when you really had to search things out right it wasn't like and, uh, at the like immediate like we have everything anyone can listen to anything at any time now and the the fact of that choice really um that's why playlists are so ubiquitous and people really don't even want to search things out they simply want someone to tell them right. in this vastness of of choice what it is they should be listening to um but yeah i we when i grew up you know a record still cost 15 dollars, and you went uh you went into the the, the aisles and went to different all the different genre so, yeah. sections and 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 track things down and 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 hoped that you spent your money that month on the right one or two things. <laughs> right. <laughs> and if you didn't, you had to sh- show up at the used place and hope that they'd give you some m- amount of it back. Right. How do you, like, is that kind of sad now to see how music's become? Because I feel like there's two sides of it where it's definitely positive that more people can hear things that they never would before. But it also, like you said, people just kind of take what's curated for them and there's a lack of, like, exploration at least around like my age and the general general pop i feel like the access is wonderful um the 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 fact that um that the model that has been adopted that 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 was forced on to everyone by streaming services and the major labels in their um in their agreement the fact that th- that that model is one which gives up all of you know the entirety of um of the intellectual property of music um in perpetuity for free um and that it's made you know entire 
an entire generation of, of people just assume that music should be and will always be right. um, uh, uh, free of any cost. That, I think, is incredibly damaging in, 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 in so many different ways. Um, and, 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 and to a certain degree is, is to blame for why um, people may be a little bit less um, invested in the choice yeah um aspect of it and and it's really even if they were to have set up something where there was never the ad revenue based f- free choice to 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 listen if it had, if it if it had been that ten dollars a month got you everything that there ever was that would even that would have been better because right now um we think that the ad the ad revenue the the the, the free users are paying in some way to to anything but it's just simply not true the math of it is just that like 90 percent of there's only about 10 percent of people who use the services that pay wow the, um, i had no idea 90 percent of those of those users are, are using the free ones. Um, but the 90% who are using the free ones, that ad revenue only pays about 10% of what is going to musicians. The How is that 90% even... of what's going to musicians is coming out of the 10% who are actually paying the $10 a month. So um, <clears throat> even right there, even just gutting that idea that, that people should just be able to access all of this information for, for free would already do enormous um step towards actually getting musicians paid for these things uh, getting streamed but um but once you let the, the cat out of the bag i'm not sure how you you convince everyone that they now uh, need to pay i mean simply uh, similar to to um social media uh if if it wasn't for the fact that it was all free and um and ba- and 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 that they were that they're you know their value was based in advertisement um we we might not be all getting manipulated to the degree that we're getting manipulated right now right um, and i i've had a lot of talks about that um in class and stuff where there's this level of entitlement that we have because it's free and so we feel like social media like belongs to us and i think the same yeah. thing's happening in music like we're like yeah of course we get to listen to that because it's for us you know what i mean but it's just because mm-hmm. what we're seeing is entirely being manipulated for us even when it comes to music and it's just because they pop an ad up here or there and it's this strange level of like like we don't own any of that <laughs> like it's essentially trying to think that we are the product not like the social media is not the product the music's not really the product anymore like we are the product that is being sold or manipulated more than anything else that we're actually viewing. And that's just a really strange speaking, construct. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the actions, the actions of every individual in, in aggregate is the product. Um, and it didn't have to be the way, and it doesn't, it doesn't still have to be that way. Uh, but not enough people are paying attention um, to, to that, to, to the, to the, to the danger and to the alternatives and the ones that are paying it, even the ones that are paying attention probably are not giving it, pay, paying it enough heed. Yeah. So, it's just it, cause it's so big now and it, it got so out of control so quickly. It's like, okay, that's just how things are now. And I don't know. It's so, it's so institutionalized too, that it's really easy to feel like David and Goliath. Like it's just too big of a it, hurdle to overcome, I guess. 
Yeah, it, it, it is very, as, as we know from all aspects of um, of society, uh, civilization, um, you know, on you know governmental levels um, to do with all of these systems, all these institutions. Once they they get to you're you're dealing with such bloat, such um, that affecting any real systemic change always seems like it's um, if if not just outright impossible, then then a then a such a daunting task as to you know as to dissuade most most people from from ever thinking that it is um, is plausible. So uh, I, I I don't know I don't know how. It actually gets, you know, any progress actually gets done. I mean, I know mm-hmm. it all seems to, to be very gradual, um, and that very little, uh, um, very little affected change happens quickly without catastrophe. And uh, I just don't think that, um, in terms of you know, just specifically looking at the the streaming model for musicians mm-hmm. um, and music the catastrophe was was a, was gradual enough um and one that really affected just one part of the population um and uh you know the small sector of creators and uh and it and it and with the wave that uh, uh, you know away from paying for it also came this this kind of this really insidious uh narrative which every time it came up and it came up on NPR, it came up all over any sort of, anytime anybody was talking about this in, in news media, there was always the, Oh sure. They don't make any money off of selling their albums anymore, but they make so much more money playing live shows now and they get to right. play more. They get to play more, which a is not true. And B, if it was true would be such a foul fucking thing to say about somebody like hey you should right. be you should be thanking us because we're stealing your your intellectual <laughs> property because now you get to spend your whole life out on the road and never uh-huh. having any any relationships or home life at all you're just a um, puppet thank you <laughs> so yeah um it's uh, but 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 again it's it's simply not true there was a slight uptick over a couple of years where small venues were actually seeing a little bit more um more traction but every, you know for the last 6 years they've all in, been in massive decline and the only thing that that is making more money are big ticket festivals so really? yes if you're if if you're a big t- ticket festival you're selling more than you've ever sold before but venues awesome. that are um, smaller than 3000 uh, seats those are in the shitter yeah so. and it's like if you're buying festival tickets you're not even like you're not buying it for that artist like some people do but like how does that money even go to the artist equally if if it's just for the festival like in general exactly yeah I just see I don't know how any it of it yeah. works so it's it scares me because I always want to support artists and I still I still buy vinyl I still buy CDs like I don't I won't touch digital music like that's a whole nother thing cuz I'm pretentious or whatever but like but I I always <laughs> <laughs> I always will buy the records of the artists that I support and it's like sometimes I'll listen to an album like free guiltily to see if I like it you know what I mean and like mm-hmm. I still feel bad because 
Like, do you feel like we should still be buying things blindly just for the sake of music? And then if we don't like it, we don't like it. Or do you think that like, that's still a good way to use it is to like, see like the test run it. Um, uh, I think it's, it's maybe not, it's maybe not practical or feasible to think, thinking that you should simply just abide by the old standard. Um, a, because the, the, the structure just isn't in place right. to do that the same, the same way. Um, and, and also, uh, denying the access entirely is, is, um, I feel like is a little bit limiting, but, uh, for me, yeah, the, the, the purchase of, of most things, um, uh, on, on vinyl and digital and digitally is how I continue to support the music that, mm -hmm. that I, um, that I, that I like to listen to and support and going forward in terms of a, a model to, to, to be aware of and to maybe and to maybe try to pour all of your support into um as they as they happen is is the the advent of streaming services that are that have alternative models um of right. of income and distribution so there are some there have been some that have tried to get off the ground and have not been successful but there are more that are trying to do this um where where streaming is simply um, it's kind of, uh, it's incremental. And, uh, so for example, basically to, to listen to something once to try it out, doesn't cost you much of anything. It, it costs right. your, your account something like 0 0.05 cents. Um, wow. And then over the course of 10 listens, you have spent enough, you, you've spent with every um, with incrementally inc increasing charge um, for every listen, you then have spent I, I think a dollar and you own the song and you never pay for it again. What? So then, the... so that's so then, insane. yeah. Well, th that's um that's a that's an idea for something that would actually get money to people because it right would, right it, that, the, that the makes sense. The amount of money that it would equate to would be much. Much more so, um, but than instead you just what pay is currently going to three bucks. To artists. Yeah, yeah. What's it? I said, but instead you just pay three bucks and listen to whatever, <laughs> wherever. Um, yeah, yeah. The uh, the the current thing with everything just you know being uh, free or or being just kind of like a flat ten dollars for whatever you can consume um, in a month is is you know it's just it's patently absurd um thinking that that money is going to actually get in the hands of anybody especially when you think the kinds of music that people listen to over and over and over again right yeah exactly are not necessarily you know there are certain musics that i adore that are some of my favorite things that have ever been created but i don't listen to them Reg very regularly right because they're special and sometimes they're and, just and weird maybe they're a little bit more of a of a very particular kind of listening experience mm -hmm. like more difficult musics more challenging musics um more uh, musics that are they're just um, immersive 
you're you know you're not necessarily going to put that on <laughs> at a dinner party or when you're yeah. going to the gym um <laughs> so it's going to get they're going to get you know fewer plays right. um so it doesn't so for something like that you know they would back in the day it you know you would have made more money on uh, that artist would make more money um, selling a single yeah. CD to someone yeah, who would right. listen to it maybe 20 times in their life. But, but the, the major labels will make much more money uh, uh, at, at, with this model um, having a track be played just ubiquitously across all platforms, you know, um, in everybody's playlist, in every shop, and everything you know, as background music, um, and in every gym. Um, <clears throat> you know that it's a it's a it's a different way of of monetizing and then it definitely uh skews in favor of a very particular kind of um of music so yeah yeah we could go into that shit forever <laughs> it's pretty dark <laughs> it's so shitty like do you we can move on to something else soon because this is just going to get depressing but like it's already gotten quite <laughs> <laughs> quite depressing but um and it will and it would and it could get more yeah that's that def- that's the question i was gonna further, ask but we don't we certainly don't have to do you do you think it's gonna get worse before it gets better like what's the what is even the end game because it's not like it's gonna go in reverse and artists are gonna suddenly be like like you said i don't ever see anyone advocating for this partly because people just get their music so they don't give a shit and partially because there's just so much other shit going on right now like in our in our country and just everything that like that's not like music is a place that people go to to escape that shit so the last thing they're going to want to do is start to advocate where they don't have to advocate you know what i mean so and they and uh, people simply um uh, rationalize um after the fact the 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 free um the the free cost to to everything i mean i've i've heard it from people who I know making these weird, um, these, these strange, these bizarre uh, arguments about, you know, in, in basically in defense of never purchasing a single thing in music related for just the the same sort of things using these like, well, now they make so much more money with live live performance or now um, it's, it means that more people have access to your music and it's all there. It's, 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 it's it's the ways that people go about um, feeling good about the fact that they don't, that they are not, yeah they're just making excuses for for a service. Um, so, because ultimately, the only thing that I think is, you know could push it in the right direction is is if this push most people most people right now have become aware that that um, of the dangers and the real um, um, sinister nature of how they are they have been psychologically and economically manipulated by social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is more of a push with that um, because it hits them on a personal level. It hits, it's, it's about them and it's about their privacy and it's about their lives. Um, the idea that there could be some sort of a shift in or in a new platform form offered with social media um, where it's a pay, um, a pay model that um, ends up getting you 
outside of that of this kind of like uh, the 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 um the advertisement manipulation mm-hmm. that seems more likely to me to, ha- to happening and if that happens then perhaps there's a back door for music streaming to 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 do the same thing for uh for some platforms to come up that are that offer that same um you know alternative and I think that there could be a piggybacking there, but I'm not. I don't, I'm not really that confident that it would just come of its own volition. Right. I mean, that's not totally pessimistic, though. So, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, no, I'm not totally pessimistic. <laughs> that spawned a couple of questions. Um, first, I'm curious, like, how do you use social media? I don't really use it. Uh, I use it to. Um, to inform inform people of of shows, mm-hmm. and uh, and and just to kind of as a a bit of feedback loop, uh, you know, I, I I'm I'm active on Twitter as insofar as when there is chatter about any of the work that I'm doing, I try to um, be present with with people and and and. Right. And if there's any, you know, uh, with people who are praising or have any questions or anything like that, and um, otherwise, it's it's just there for me to post news and for, to keep people informed. Right. Um, but I don't, I don't really share uh, at all any real any personal aspects of life on that. I I've I revolted from it. Uh, years ago, I was instantly um, repulsed. Uh, Yikes! Because um, the I, I'm extremely um, particular and selective when it comes to who I spend my time with. I have mm-hmm. very little of it, and so I I I have some friends who you know i make and i keep forever and i spend my time with with those people and it's right um and so the idea that one would just simply share all things with with just whoever i mean honestly with any with everything with everybody just posting i i don't i don't really understand i don't understand the the impetus i don't understand the the motivations behind mm-hmm. um that the 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 initial instinct to simply say this is this is all of me um here just have at have at it Because uh, <laughs> it, it i guess it feels cheap um yeah it's nothing special anymore well yeah because who because anybody can access it so how did they earn that access yeah um they didn't they didn't um so uh so there's that but um yeah so i i just never really engaged in it before and i continued that and i if it wasn't for the fact that musically it is uh i guess a near essential tool for Mm -hmm. for advert for advertising um I, i wouldn't use it at all yeah See, that's weird for me to hear because I, like, I grew up knowing only that. So Mm. I'm in this weird space where I feel like I can definitely understand, like, where you're coming from and and that side of it. And I'm very, very critical of it, but I still use it. And it's just this weird space of, like, 
I don't know who's going to see this. Like, do I really care about like, like I constantly question like, why, why, why do I share this? And what I do share is like, I'll share my podcast or I'll share, um, I don't know, something I'm writing, you know? And I, I think, like you said, it, it is definitely a tool. Like it's amazing how many artists you can reach just from whatever and how many people can be connected in ways they wouldn't be able to be before. And I'll share like a song I'm listening to because that's not like, haha, look at me, everyone. I'm listening to music. I'm very cool. But I, I genuinely aim to like share it. Like I, I try to use it for the actual reason it is like to have someone see that song and be like, Oh, I'm maybe I'll listen to that. And then they hear it and they like it. But that doesn't mm-hmm. feel like the aim of other people, especially not specifically like if they share songs or whatever, like the the thing that makes the most sense to me that I've heard argued, um, I took a technology class and it was philosophy of technology. So it was a lot about why we use social media and like what the actual point of it is. And I, a lot of what I gathered is that it's just like, like, especially people my age, we don't know how to not feel like lonely or we don't, we don't know how to feel lonely, I guess. Like we're, we're <laughs> so scared. But yeah, we're so scared of like, it's always like, look at me, look at me. Like I'm valid in the world. If I'm doing something and other people are seeing that I'm doing it, like then it's valid, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm living right. I'm doing things right. And I just watched this documentary about this photographer and he said, this was like a long time ago, but he said, uh, nowadays it's more about being at the, or it's more about having been to the event than actually going to the event. Mm-hmm. And I feel that so strongly and it just, it scares me more than anything else. Like I, I don't see much, I follow a lot of artists that are just doing cool things like on Instagram and stuff and they're sharing themselves making beats and they're interacting with their fans and like, that's awesome. Then I'll just see people like, like I can, I can tell when you're just sharing it to share it, you know, and it's this weird thing where every time I go to post something, I'm like, okay, do I really need to go into detail on this? Or if whoever really gives a shit wants to know about it, they're going to talk to me about it (laughs) one-on-one. So like, like, are there that many people that, that I care just enough about that they vaguely know what I was doing to even share this? I don't know. I'm in my thoughts, I guess. Visibility is a commodity um, at this point. And because, and so if, if everyone is, so everyone is constantly seeking these, these, these kind of, um, these infinitesimal, um, rewards from every, from, from every little like and, um, and notice that they've gotten from, from the world. So it's, it's very easy to see how, how it's, how it starts and how that, how that, um, how these habits feed into a bigger, um, dependency on more of the same, um, and uh, yeah, undoing it seems um, pretty. Yeah, <laughs> pretty daunting. <clears throat> you got me. I'm just gonna go delete all my social media after this. <laughs> well, have you read the uh, uh, Jaron uh, Lanier's book yet? No, I haven't. Uh, check that one out. He's got. Um, I think it's. What is it? I think it's called something like Six Reasons to Delete All Your Social Media Right Now." Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um. I haven't. I haven't read yet. A friend of mine just finished and 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 said that 
I mean, and then did just that. And they're it, apparently it's a very uh, convincing. I've done that like convincing argument. I used to do it a lot more when I didn't have my podcast and I wasn't constantly like obliged to be sharing like you were saying about your music. But I would go through phases where I would just delete everything for like three weeks and just not think about it, not touch it. And like I never felt I was missing anything like all You're the people missing anything. All the people that I wanted to see doing stuff, we talked, we hung out, we spent time together in person. And like, I don't know, but I, I there's still that like dopamine hit where like, you know, and most of the shit I see, I don't care about. And it's like, okay, I'm glad that person's still like whatever in that frat. But <laughs> then it's like, yeah, well, but there's what still it is, is it's, ex- it's experiential fast food. Um, and I mean that wow. you know, pretty much literally, you know, um, because why do we, why do, that's a beautiful what, way to say what that. about us? Um, why do we crave the, the, you know, why, why is fast food, uh, successful? Why was it? And why is it, why does it continue to be successful? Because we are, um, this, this organic system that is, you know, has been, has been evolved to seek out the most um, uh, the most fuel for the least amount of energy e- e- exhaustion. So, um, so we find this food source that has just is, is just huge empty calories, um, mm-hmm. and and hugely inexpensive in terms of 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 how what what it costs us to get it. Um, there's no work and there's very you know there's very very little resource that needs to to be expended. Um, and so, and, and so it makes perfect sense. And the same thing goes for everything going for all of social media, um, and the life on the internet. It, mm-hmm. um, it is supplying you, um, uh, your, your brain chemistry, um, with all of the same things as actually living, um, life would, would supply you with. And in some, if, with, right. in some arguments, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually a much, much higher, more, um, concentrated dose of all of that because Mm -hmm. in a sense it's giving you i mean it's giving you kind of like a hyper realized um version of what it would have been like to be um a hunter gatherer pre-agricultural days when 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 when, you know anything that anything outside of the hundred people that you know is a threat you know (laughs) you know is something yeah and so there's the in-group out group is is palpable and it's and it's and it's really turned up the volume on that is turned up to the max and so you get in the internet and it's and it is that you know just exponentially compounded and uh and so, you know, then you, which gives rise to all the other problems we have politically and, and whatnot right now. But, um, <sighs> but it, 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 um, it, it simply triggers all the same things, but, uh, and, and it does so w- with us having expended no physical energies and put ourselves in no way at, at physical, uh, risk. And right. So it is just, it is just that you're, you're getting all the same bang and, 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 arguably much bigger dose of it all for um for very low cost um, biologically speaking and so people and so yeah how do you get how do you turn that off it's not going to turn off (laughs) (laughs) it's just not well damn um i wrote out a big ass list of questions to ask you and i only got to ask you one so let's talk about (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about your music a little bit um i don't 
I read a lot of the interviews you did for Hereditary, so I don't want to bore you with like the same old questions. No, thank um, you. So, <laughs> so how how does it feel now that some time has passed since like the movies come out and the albums come out? Like, how do you how do you feel about it? I'm very happy with it. Um, it's I, having seen the film and um, and having it all of all of the aspects of it be fully realized I'm, mm-hmm. I'm incredibly uh satisfied with the whole thing I, I had a great time it was it was as close to a perfect working relationship and 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 um work experience as i think one can get at that's awesome uh, um i you know ari and i were he came to me very uh you know a year at least if mm-hmm. not two before he had gotten all of his funding and everything together um, and casting and everything. So I was, I was the first one involved and was able to get a lot of, um, a lot of writing done well in advance of shooting. Yeah. Is that rare on the for films? Like, t- it cause is, it sounds like you were, were very we're early in the process. It, it, it is very rare, but trying to make it more um, of, of a, of a preferred model i think more and more and more composers are are demanding it when they can and yeah, requesting it, it across it the board it feels like you're like not even just the composer like now you're a part of like like not necessarily a writer and stuff but i feel like you have way more of an idea of the feel of the film and like the story of it and i think it shows in the music when you have been sitting with the ideas of it for a while and when you're in close connect with the director Whereas sometimes it's just like, okay, compose for this. You know what I mean? Like it feels very in sync, I think. Yes. Well, the the problem with the old model of just waiting to the last minute to do mm-hmm. to bring in a composer is that what that entails is is that the entirety of the film has been that has been edited to other music. It's not that they don't just edit it with in silence and then attach music to it later. Yeah, it's the temp um, music they, or whatever. They, so 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 they've they've already structured all the scenes to a, a kind of like a haphazard cobbling together of cues from other films, from other mm-hmm. records and and then the composer comes in and has to look at all those and if he's lucky then uh they will be able to um uh step away from this, you know, the kind of Frankenstein of all of the right. temp and see some cohesive, uh, coherent arc um, and still make a score that really just has, um, has its own character and, it, and, 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 and really just is as much, um, is as integral and uh, seamless a, a, an aspect of the film as any other mm-hmm. aspect. Um, but, it's a it's it it just sets up so many hurdles because you're fighting not only um again like just not only from an internal perspective of thinking now that you've been influenced by all these all this temp throughout the whole thing you have to then mm-hmm. translate that all in take what it was that that the director and the editor wanted um to accomplish with all this the what they liked about all the different temp and then try to um, make some, uh, you know, translate that into into um, something that, again, has a coherent shape um, and character. 
for the for the entirety of the film, not just from scene to scene. Right. But it also feels then like, you're yeah. fighting against every you're you're fighting against every one of these individual scenes because <laughs> the all the beats that that are hit throughout the that scene, all of the um you know, sonic you know, it can get very, very particular what an editor and what a director and producers get attached to in yeah. in those instances. And so you might just you you might make um, a piece of um, film music for a scene that is is functioning perfectly, but timbrely it just doesn't have the same instrumentation. Yeah, and so someone who has been sitting with an earlier version of the scene for maybe a hundred times through it as they <laughs> as they edited yeah. it, how can they? How I mean, it is it right. in a sense it's like a, it's it's an of course you know that they're 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 not going to. Um, cozy up to something new um, <laughs> after that because they've been so ingrained with the other for so long. That so doesn't it's hard, seem natural. It's a, it um, it's a really bad um, it's a it's a very bad model, and uh, and more and more people. I mean, I the first thing that I remember talking to Johan Johansson about was that we were we were having lunch and and he was talking about how he didn't use temp anymore. And he just demanded that that he write music for the film and outside of it, um, like out, out, you know, on the on the onset, and that the ideas that he had come up with, those things mm-hmm. were in, were used as the temp, and then he would expand off of that. And I've been trying to do that as much as possible. And so yeah. the last two things I've done, uh, the fir- uh, the TV show, the first and Hereditary, both operated pretty much that way. Yeah, I'm first. I'm sorry about Johan. Um, I didn't know you were like close or knew him at all. He's one yeah. of my, like, I love scores and I always pay very close attention to it. And his were just there are, like, they always stuck out to me so much different than anything else. And yeah, it's I'm just a tremendous uh, loss. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry about that. But I was I was curious how how you took from him but that makes sense when you say that like it, it it feels so much more in the movie like it's like what you've said about hereditary how if like you're paying attention to the score or it feels like you're hearing a score you know what i mean like you failed to get the point <laughs> and like that's how his and your music feels like it's it's just a part of the film it's not backed to the film if that makes sense and i think music is so important when it comes to film and i think it consistently gets underrated because you just assume it's going to be there and there's going to be these perfect beats and it's going to carry it but like if you listen or if you watch films without music it's the most bizarre thing ever like it just doesn't make any sense and so that whole process is just weird that you would come in at the last minute and I never thought about that how the editor is already sitting with something else like of course it's going to be like just completely foreign like it's like They'd be like bringing the director in like well after the scenes are shot and then be like, okay, <laughs> how do you want this to look like? It's just not natural. And it feels like it's deconstructing the whole process of it being like a cohesive piece of art. Yeah. And uh, yet it's been something that's been an accepted practice for so many years. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, again, one of those things that it, it it's good that people are talking about it more um, and it's, and, and they are um, I've yeah. in, in conversations um, and on the job more so it's it's been changing so i i'm hopeful 
Going yeah, forward. I've been learning a lot about um, like the film industry and how it began and what actually goes on in the making of films. And I feel like disappointed or like, I don't know, it's like seeing your favorite food being made. Like there's so little, I feel like now there's a lot of indie projects and stuff that are like awesome and full of heart and are made for art's sake. But there's so much that's just made for like, it's just recycled shit and it's like it's a business and it started as a business and I feel like that's really dangerous to use that that kind of process where you're just like plugging in the same formulas or you're just bringing in the composer at the end like it just doesn't feel as organic or special and I'm, I'm glad that projects like Hereditary still exist where they're coming from independent film studios and they're you can tell that they were made with passion and heart you know what I mean yeah and in in a, in a lot of ways, it's it's a it's expanding. People are are, are noticing that that the yeah. that the results from something like that can be incredibly rewarding, and and they're starting to double down on it. So yeah. And then Avengers fifteen <laughs> comes out. That again. can always that can also happen. <laughs> there's, there's space for both. <laughs> they make them so quickly. I had no idea. Like it's just. It's just one after another. It's it's weird. Five hundred million dollars is a lot of money. <laughs> that that it is, and can, like it's yeah. it's sad though because I've been learning about how like they can't, they don't even use the same directors because the directors are like, damn dude, like I don't want to make the same thing over and over again. Like I want to, I want to have some some leisure with it, and it's just it's weird. It just doesn't make sense to me, especially because I'm studying film in school, and so it's like. I'll n- I would never do that. Like I would never see it as a commodity rather than art, which is like the sole purpose. I don't know. Oh, that brings you back to a question that I meant to ask you, like, I don't know, 30 minutes ago. Um, at what point did your music go from like the priority being, I just want to get this out to like understanding that you need to make money for it to like be a thing? Because I feel like we were talking about um, how people like the, just the whole thing about selling records and then getting it heard like when did that become a priority where it was like i really want my stuff to just be heard i'm fine with that and then you were like well wait i need some compensation for this like when did that happen i don't know that i've ever separated the two of those things really i've never i've never been someone who simply was just like making it for the um uh making it for myself Mm-hmm. It's it's never been. I mean, I since I was young, I've been making music and performing live, and and I went to I went to school for for it, um, and uh, so it's all been, all those things have been completely intertwined from the beginning. It's never been a hobby. It's never been something that I do simply um, for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel no, like it's I, unique. I yeah. I don't know that um, I, I can't really answer that question. Hmm. So when you watched the film, did it like make you feel like, did you get disturbed by your own music <laughs> or was it? Just oh, sure. Um, yeah. Um, and, and just, I mean, I was, I was trying to be extremely economic with, with things in, in that score and and to and to be as restrained as was humanly possible and i only i just 
tried to mirror only what was happening in like on the picture and in that narrative as it slowly yeah. unfolds and so you know which meant just kind of paring back here and there making sure that nothing really ever um uh, attracted too much attention to itself sonically mm-hmm. uh, melodically any of those things you know, just real avoidance of a lot of um a lot of big um more heavy-handed um, devices because I found that just a subtlety um, of of maintaining the subtlety of support I guess um, mm-hmm. was was far more beneficial to the way that that film was working and unfolding than than something that was a little bit more uh, in your face and a little more upfront right. um, yeah. uh, in the um, in the thought process so yeah watching watching it back i mean i i've i had been watching it (laughs) (laughs) for months uh (laughs) the score was supposed to be you know originally contracted at 45 minutes of music and i think we ended up at 88 wow (laughs) it's something and yet uh you know it still feels as though there's a lot of space in the film because we took advantage of of when 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 that space happened it was in very uh, opportune moments yes the silence is so um, mm-hmm. like the silence stands out yeah and then the and the, the, the and a lot of my uh, my uh impulse um for creating the the character of the score was simply to in a sense to think about kind of abstractly um how would you represent the the sound of of silence being like the volume being turned up on silence like on the ambient hmm. silence of a of the of a of a quiet house um and uh and you know when you when when you really look at the minutia um the white noise the um the the little the tiny little creaks and groans when those things become the foreground Mm -hmm. um so in a sense that's what i was trying to do with the with the overall air and quality of everything that was the basis for for Uh for the score and um yeah and just to be you know relatively innocuous while still being affecting Mm -hmm. my favorite thing from that whole movie and i don't know I, i assume it was you but the there's like a consistent like heartbeat in the background. Mm -hmm. I think that is brilliant. Like that alone made the movie so much more for me. Like there was Mm -hmm. never like, there would be nothing happening. It would just be a completely normal scene that in every other horror movie, even though this wasn't really a horror movie, like, like if it was just a normal daytime scene, it would just be like, okay, this is the relief part, but there was never that relief. Like that little heartbeat in the background, everyone I've watched it with, like, didn't really notice it but i always noticed it and like especially the scene where annie goes to um joni's apartment and it's just boom 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 and then like when the door opens and it just stops like i think that's amazing how did you mm-hmm. like think to have that just consistent like unease with that just that little small like bass or whatever it was those sounds are actually um the keys the percussion of the keys from my instruments and so 
um, they are with the way that I record things they are pretty much ubiquitous in there and for mm -hmm. me it was they're all they're always there and I can carve them in and out depending on what is going on in the scene um, and uh, and so it's I guess specific for, for me it's because it's such a huge aspect of the of the like a central factor of the sound of the, of the sounds that I create um, and the music that I create solo wise and on mm -hmm. those on all the woodwind instruments, it it's something that is just always there and I don't even have to question um, the the presence of it. Uh, so right, um, it's a device that I utilize a lot and one that you yes you can use it subtly and not so subtly and um, whether people are conscious of it or not it's something that is having effect uh, on them and on their um, I'm seriously like obsessed with it like I don't know what it is but like I love that element mm. of it so much because I've never seen a movie where like I've seen movies where there's a constant thing in the background and it's like a note or like strings back and forth but that didn't even sound like music. And however the mixing was done on that, like it's just so perfectly subtle that like, cause I saw it in theaters for the first time and I just, I couldn't breathe the whole time. And I think that little piece is so crucial to that. Whether you, whether you realize it or not at all, like when you're watching it, if you hear it or not, like it just leaves you on edge because there's no, right like relief and i i just i found it to be brilliant like i've never seen awesome. a movie like usually i can be like okay it shows the house in daytime now this is going to be the relief part where they just have some dialogue and move the plot along and there was never that <laughs> it was just like mm -hmm. a fucking fever dream and i just i don't know i loved it i just loved it a Thanks, lot man. so yeah i'm um, fanboying I'm, a little bit but i'm coming up to uh run out of time oh man that stinks because i could talk for ever <laughs> um okay let me cram everything into the last couple minutes okay. uh i think it's amazing that you've worked with bonnie Vera and arcade fire and i want to thank you for those sounds um oh, my pleasure man I, I don't know do you have like time for a question or two or do you like have to go like yeah. right now so okay so the last thing we can talk about that's important uh tell me about the first a little bit like how how did you work with it and like how was it different from hereditary Oh, in almost every way, um, in terms of just <laughs> approaching it. But it was it was another really incredible working relationship and experience. I got to to supply the editors with an enormous glut of <laughs> of music beforehand. All of the, I mean, not all, but most of the major themes were written well in advance, and were all tempt in so mm -hmm. i think i think maybe i had maybe four cues with music that wasn't mine um tempt oh. in through the whole season um and um and so it was that was extremely positive the the showrunners specifically wanted me to to approach it as I've approached my music in the past and to have it have a have a have a sense of this being firmly rooted in the the sounds and aesthetics of my solo music and so that was a so it was a very mm -hmm. um, comfortable and intuitive place to start from and to and to build off of and um, I guess the biggest 
shift, the, the biggest contrast between this and hereditary would be that where hereditary was specifically, I uh, was specifically avoiding theme and uh, melodic devices and um, sentimentality mm-hmm. and nostalgia and all of these uh, these no- normally uh, you know well used um, motives. Um, the uh, the first was was entirely that I, I you know was I was um, I was able to go really far in, into that direction, mm-hmm. um, very far into you know kind of heartstring emotionality and um, and uh, these epic uh, epic uh, main themes, but um, and then in the first uh, being able to then contrast that juxtapose the the epic and the the um, sonorous and the credential with yeah. um with something like you know um a track like fallout you know in in the first yeah yeah in the first uh episode where you know i was able to go full pretty much full horror just like a completely <laughs> laid bare solo saxophone with yeah with percussive with key percussion and and um and uh, distortion and all these things, and you know later on in the in in, this, in the episodes, really um, expansive ambient spaces um, that mm-hmm. are really just uh, very lazy and and gorgeous. Uh, I, I I got to do an enormous amount of very different um, you know quote unquote kinds of music that right. all um, that all were feeding into the same into the same uh, storyline the same narrative so I, I had a I had a ball with it that's awesome man I'm, I'm really glad to hear that so do you think you're gonna keep with the scores like you are you enjoying it a lot yeah very cool. much so cool well I won't keep any longer uh I have so much more I could ask you but <laughs> I I really appreciate you talking to me today it means a lot my so. pleasure man it's been it's been fun thanks for if asking your questions if you're ever in uh, Ann Arbor again <laughs> for a concert or something, I'll be sure to be there. All right, man. So thank you so much. Talk Good to you later. To talk to you. Bye.